You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So let's open in prayer. Father, every single chapter in your word has input, significance, and a special place. None, none of your word is extra or unnecessary. You have ordained that every jot and every tittle is important. And so as we look into your word this morning, remembering that, I pray that we would take it to heart, that we would hear, and that we would obey because, Lord, our obedience is a glory to you and a praise to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want that in His name. Amen. So, how many of you have ever worked at a job where you... Now, think critically now. Critically. Not just knee-jerk. But you weren't paid what you were worth. And it's okay to raise your hand, because that's happened to probably everybody. You weren't paid what you were worth. How many of you have, and, and did that bother you? And you kind of knew it, but okay, the, the part of you that, that trusts Christ, you went ahead and put your nose to the grindstone anyway and you worked hard. That's not normal, by the way. That's not normal. That's not the way the market works when it's just working without any external influences. How many of you have ever worked at a job where you were paid more than you were worth and you knew it? Almost every job, especially when I was being paid nothing. Um, think about that for a minute. Is Did it bother you? Or did it cause you to kind of try to work a little harder in some ways and, and give a little extra? You were grateful for that extra pay. Well, one of the things we're going to look at today is, is um, if we get that far, and, and we will, we'll get, we'll get into the beginning of it, is... That, that interaction that occurs when someone is being remunerated for the work that they do and that the work that they're doing is good and right and useful and the pay that they're getting is good and right or not so good and not so right. We'll, we'll work some of that into the, to, to the discussion, but Paul has a, a bone to pick with the Corinthians. Oh, really? You mean, Bone number seven three hundred and thirty four is actually what it is. So we're going to talk about that as we as we go through chapter nine of First Corinthians, a chapter that some scholars think is out of place, was a mistake, was an inclusion. Somebody grabbed it, copied it, and pasted it in twelve hundred A.D. or something. I don't know. I don't have the dates uh, in, into a into a book where it didn't belong. But we'll talk about that too. So let's go ahead and read chapter nine. And we're going to see another one of Paul's, do you not know? Do you not know? In verse 13. So chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, page 1480. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? I love his negatives. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Am I not speaking these things accord? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I'm going to stop there. Lots of questions Paul's asking the Corinthians. Imagine yourself in the, the body, in the, in, the, in the building that they're meeting, in the church, and, and the reader is reading this letter from the Apostle Paul. And it starts out, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And if the reader was a good one, he would, he would give some, some emphasis and some, some passion to it. So that the people in the audience would, in some places, I think they would be wincing. Yeah, I guess you are. Because these are things that in their letters to him, letter, at least one we know of, they probably leveled these questions at him, these charges. And so Paul's going to answer him. Chapter 9, it first seems an anomaly until one realizes that it is in fact a dissertation of Paul showing how he operated according to the very advice he gave in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he encouraged the stronger Corinthians, in, the stronger uh, Christians in Corinth to at least in the issue of eating meat offered to idols show deference to the weaker and not violate their consciences. In chapter 9, Paul, who is still dealing with a recalcitrant church, reminds them that he is an apostle. He reminds them that. Notice the absence of the phrase, now concerning, by the way, in the first verse. This is also a clue that he's continuing the instruction from chapter 8. He reminds them that he has the freedom that Christ brought him, bought for him. And that he himself had seen the Lord Jesus Christ, which is one of the requirements to be an apostle. By the way, anybody wants this list, I forgot. I didn't have my projector last week. Um, I can say, I can email it to you. I'll, Jess asked for it. I'll get it to him. But there, there's that list I talked about last week. But moving on to chapter nine, Paul said, I have seen the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was one of the requirements. Acts chapter one, 18 through 22. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, speaking of Judas. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is the, written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his place. Therefore, based on this, the writer of the book of Acts says this quote, let, let it, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his, um, a witness with us of his resurrection. Face one direction or the other. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. 
This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. This is one of the requirements to be an apostle. You had to be a witness. You had to, you had to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Acts 3, 14 and 15. But if, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, And with great power the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the abundant grace, and abundant grace was upon them all. And then Acts chapter 22, 12 through 15, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. To see the righteous one. And to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. So Paul was an apostle based on all the requirements, including the one that you're required to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Uh, he had a very, as we all know, on, you know, I believe it was Acts chapter 9, he had quite a dramatic uh, reconciliation with the Lord Jesus. He then walks through a litany of explanations, Paul does, in chapter 9, detailing why it is appropriate for someone to earn a living for the work they do. Doesn't that sound, I mean, how many of you have gardens? When you're out there picking and, and, and weeding and doing the things, and you see a very nice strawberry, you leave it alone, don't you? It stays there until the duration and it goes in a bowl somewhere. No, you don't. Quit it. You pluck that puppy and you shove it down and it's good. And that's okay. You planted the garden. You tended it. You should be able to reap some of the produce in payment. So Paul... He talks about why it's appropriate for someone to earn a living for the work that they do. His work was spreading the gospel. And he uses an Old Testament allusions, allusions to demonstrate the propriety of deriving support from his work. He then explains to the Corinthians how he follows the advice he gave in chapter 8. He follows his own advice that he gave in chapter 8 by scrupulously avoiding a salary which could possibly give the appearance of impropriety. Did not those stronger Corinthians Christians have the right to eat that meat that was offered to idols? Of course they did. But he was calling them to avoid doing that so that they wouldn't strain or, dis or damage the consciences of weaker Christians. And so he does the very thing that he gives. He practices what he preaches. He practices what he preaches. Paul then turns to a common scene in the ancient world regarding athletic contests in which the athlete denies himself in order to become prepared to compete. This chapter is not out of place at all. In fact, it's a perfect successor to the previous chapter. And we would expect that because it was, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul. So with that introduction, let's look at chapter 9. Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? It would have been well known in the Christian circles that Paul was knocked off his horse, blinded, and kept separate for a, a period of time after having actually seen the risen Jesus Christ. And testimony would have been given by people like Ananias and Bar Barnabas to this fact. So it was well known. That was not in question. He's an apostle. Beginning the instruction in this chapter, Paul asserts by a series of questions that have only one answer, that he is as free as anyone, possibly far more free because he's an apostle. 
He is, in fact, an apostle, one commissioned to spread the very word of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a stamp of authority as to his being apostle. Finally, he reminds them that he is the one who brought the gospel to them. I'm the one who delivered the freedom that, the, that Christ brings to you. Not in a braggadocious way, just facts. These are the facts. Before Paul, the Corinthians were just another group of pagans in another pagan city in another part of the world without hope. That's all they were. The very fact that Paul had not insisted upon certain rights, though, would be that should be afforded to him as an apostle, had apparently convinced the Corinthians that he was not an apostle. And we... Have any of us ever made assumptions about stuff that later on we found were wrong, that weren't even close to right? Well, maybe not anybody in here, but I have. I've heard some information, saw some things happening, and made some assumptions without checking into it, and then found out later that I was way off base. The Corinthians assumed, probably, by his lack of asserting apostleship uh, perquisites, that he wasn't an apostle. That's his admission, that he wasn't an apostle. It couldn't have been farther from the truth. It was his lack of insistence on these rights, however, that produced the incredibly effective work he did in propagating the gospel. Verse 2, and then I'll see if there's any questions about 1 and 2, because these are kind of an introduction together. If to others, he says, I'm not an apostle, at least I am for you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He is the one who brought the gospel to the Corinthians, and they knew that. Though Paul may be questioned by others, he certainly should not be questioned by the Corinthians because of Because if his apostleship was suspect, then so is their conversion. A conversion is a divine act, a work of the Father in the lives of his children as he sees fit. Paul was used by the Lord to convert the Corinthians, and they knew it. They knew it. When he uses the word seal, by the way, it would have been a commonly understood word that the Corinthians would have all, and they would have all known exactly what he meant. Um, Most people could not read, and so the clay seal on a will or a load of grain or a government edict was a clear indication that something had been legally and legitimately done. The seal guaranteed that what was delivered was genuine. Paul's apostleship was genuine and one of the indications of its authenticity was the believing church in Corinth. Remember that when Herod had the, when the tomb, excuse me, when Pilate had the tomb sealed, his seal was put upon it. Uh, probably a wire was strung, well, not a wire, a cord was strung across with a clay, a, a lump of clay, and then a seal was stamped into that. And that seal meant a number of things to the world at that time. It was just as binding as your signature on a contract. When you put your signature on a contract, you are telling the world, telling the people, especially the parties of that contract, that you will keep the, the, the parameters of that contract. This seal was, many people couldn't read, but when they would see a clay seal, stamped with the imprint of whoever was in charge. They knew that this was authentic. So, Paul says, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It's a give and take. He's, I mean, he's not arguing for this purpose, but just looking at it from a a logical point of view, if they don't recognize that, then their entire conversion comes into question. Their salvation comes into question. Because he's the one who delivered it to them. Any questions about verses 1 and 2? Or comments. So, now Paul, I love the way when he's when I read this for the like for the first time ever. I anybody know who Perry Mason is? Okay, that's what came to mind. I even I even heard the music. That's really weird. But, <laughs> Perry Mason was a famous lawyer from the fifties 
when I was watching weird matinee TV, I guess, when I was a kid. And uh, he always won his cases. He was a he was an attorney, and he was a defense attorney, and he was and he was good at it. At any rate, um, so verse three says, "My defense to those who examine me is this." So now he's going to come up with he's going to give a list. This verse should could be directed at either the verses preceding it or the ones following it. It actually seems more logical that it is related to verses 1 and 2. The verses following seem to give a demonstration of what happens when Paul's apostleship is accepted. My defense is this. If you accept the fact that I'm an apostle, here's what, here's what that means. Here's what that portends. Verses 1 and 2, however, seem to be in the list of, it seem to be the list in defense of his apostleship. Either way, however, if we look at this verse as describing the coming defense, then the rest of the chapter all of it becomes that defense. So he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do all of you have the right to eat and drink? Actually, probably, yeah. I mean, what happens if you don't eat and drink? You get real skinny for a while. And then something else happens. You stop getting skinny because you die. Uh does your work provide you the sustenance and the the money to purchase what you eat and drink? And you can nod your heads. It's okay, yeah. And is that a good thing? Depends on what you're eating and drinking, huh? Okay. This is participatory Sunday school. <laughs> so Paul is... This is not a reference to the simple right to eat and drink. Rather, Paul is asserting to the Corinthians that he could actually require them to provide his food and drink as he ministered the gospel. Because especially in those days, uh, the, the, the way that, that interactions, financial interactions occurred, a lot of it was just room and board and a little bit beyond that. Paul could have required that they boarded him and that they fed him and, and gave him drink. Um, so in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Paul told, the, told that group of believers, told Timothy, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, he uses this verse again, Thou, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who is taught, the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now that can mean also the, uh, the exciting things that he learns in the, in the teaching. And then 1 Corinthians 9, 9-11, which is where we're at, um, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So, Paul asserts to the Corinthians, do we not have a right to eat and drink? And they know what he meant by that. By your provision is what he's talking about. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Clearly a reference to some of the questions in chapter 7. Paul reminds the Corinthians that Peter was married, and so were the brothers of Jesus, and apparently some of the other apostles as well. They all brought their wives with them when they traveled, when they were, were traveling and spreading the gospel. And they also had the right to marry and to bring a wife with them. He also had the right to marry and to bring a wife with him if he wanted to on his journeys. And he had the right to expect that she would be supported as well. We take that for granted today. When we support a missionary, it's the husband and wife, isn't it? And, and, and we don't even question that. Well, it will feed the guy, but the woman needs to get a job. Anybody ever think of that? When, when we do our budget in January, we're going to look at our budget, and there'll be a list of missionaries we ser serve and support. 
Is somebody going to raise their hand and say, now, is the wife of that guy working or not? I doubt it. I hope not. Um, and this is clear from the beginning. He says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and of Cephas? I always wonder, he sticks Cephas. Well, anyway, Peter's an interesting fellow. So, he's, he's, been, he's not being sarcastic. He's being point blank. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have a right to take along a wife, even as the rest of the apostles? Those are common things, you would think. But apparently the Corinthians were kicking at this. And then he gets, I won't call it sarcastic, but he uses kind of a double negative. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right, not have a right to refrain from working? Only Do only Barnabas and I, are we the only ones required to work? That's the reverse of that, or the correct, not a double negative way to put it. Because Paul and Barnabas worked on the side to provide themselves while they traveled and ministered the Gospels. The gospel, <laughs> Gospels, that was a poor way of choice of words. The Corinthians apparently took that as an indication that they were not equal. This is probably, probably, this is, my, this is not from Scripture, this is my interpretation, if you will, or my assessment of this. This is probably a sarcastic statement in that he acknowledges what the Corinthians believed and he pokes a hole in it. It was true that he and Barnabas... <coughs> Excuse me. It was true that he and Barnabas worked side jobs <coughs> in order not to burden the churches that they were planting, and we can look at that. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, he says, And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we, are, we endure. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you recall, brethren, that... You recall our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I would think the Corinthians would have known that he did the same thing in Thessalonica, but at any rate. Chapter 2 of Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And then Acts chapter 20, 33 through 35. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the Lord, words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is better, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The fact remains, however, now I'm on, on this particular aspect of this, the fact remains that those who provided the gospel did have a right to earn a living doing that. It was okay for them to earn a right, earn a living doing that. That's what Paul's saying. They chose not to, but that doesn't mean they couldn't. Any comments or questions about that? Verses 6 or 1 through 6. <clears throat> Verse 7. Anybody here have, anybody here in the military was in the military? Did the government pay you? <laughs> hey, and actually, quite frankly, there's an example of people who are probably not paid, especially the, the E1 through about probably E6 or E7, who actually aren't paid what they should be paid. And at any rate, that's, that's a whole other discussion and we won't get into it. But 
So he did, you didn't serve at your own expense. You didn't have to save up money before you went into the military and then use that money to pay for your travels and your clothes and your equipment, right? Okay. And that's as it should be. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Any of you in here plant a garden and not eat some of what comes out of it? Okay, well, you're weird though, Josh. You know, so. You're from Ohio. I mean, you know. That's actually where the Buckeyes got their name. Buckeye in, in, in ancient Attic means weird. You all didn't know that, did you? But it, generally speaking, if you plant a vineyard, you eat the fruit of it. And then the rest of that verse, oh, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Um, if you have a cow or, or a goat or sheep or whatever and you tend them, you, you, you get clothing from them, you get food from them, especially in those days, not so much today. We sell the hides and, and, and stuff like that. We eat the, we, we butcher a beef and we eat the meat, but we don't keep the hide or any of that stuff. The, pay, the guy that butchers it takes it and he sells it to someone who gets hides. But the point is, is everything's used and it's used by the people who actually did the work. And that's okay. It was common knowledge at the time that soldiers served at the pleasure of the emperor, but they were paid a wage and given food and board. They were also provided with the implements of war and clothing. Everything they needed to prosecute the wars that the empire was planning was given to them. Farmers planted their crops and derived a living from them. Shepherds tended their sheep and received a living from them as well. Clearly, Paul had a right to expect support from those to whom he was providing the gospel. Does, does anyone here question the fact that it's okay to earn a living presenting the gospel? We'll get to the weird ones, to the ones who shouldn't be getting earning a living from presenting a false gospel, but that's a different thing. So verse 8, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Now, Paul calls them back to the law. He is not just drawing this argument from human reasoning, but rather from the word of God itself. These are rhetorical questions to which he expects the answer, yes. The law, of course, is the first five books of the Old Testament, but it can refer to all of Scripture. Paul has a specific text in mind here, though. And that is, 1 Corinthians 9 says, for 9, 9 says, For it is written in the law of Moses, and then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, um, verse 4. This will appeal to their natural devotion to Scripture. Oxen were allowed to eat as they threshed out the grain. He says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned with oxen, is he? <laughs> it was how they were maintained. This is how the oxen were maintained. So, this is some, these are some, this is modern in a third world country. They do it pretty much the very same way that it was done two and three thousand and four thousand years ago. It's the process of loosening the edible, edible part of the cereal grain from the scaly, inedible chaff that surrounds it. It's a step in grain preparation after harvesting and before winnowing, which separates the loosened chaff from the grain. Threshing does not remove the bran from the grain. I knew you were all worried about that, so I included it. Interesting, some interesting statistics about, about this kind of thing. And we'll get to that in a minute here, but I'm trying to figure out if I... Give me just a second here, folks. Okay, we'll move right along here. So we quoted Deuteronomy 25.4. This appeals to their natural devotion to Scripture. The oxen were allowed to eat as they threshed out the grain. This would have been their payment. It was how they were maintained. In those days, just for your own information, one bushel of wheat yields approximately 60 pounds of wheat. 
thinking of, of the, the numbers in the, in, the, in the Scripture. One bushel of wheat yields approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour, and it yields 42 one-and-a-half-pound commercial loaves of white bread or about 90 one-pound loaves of whole wheat bread. You knew the whole wheat was better, didn't you? And there's approximately 16 ounces of flour and a one-and-a-half-pound of loaf of wheat. So this was the... This was the staple of the ancient world, one of the staples of the ancient world. And they had no problem letting the oxen eat some of it while they were walking around and around, trampling, threshing the grain. So there's a lot of work that went into making bread, and far more than today. And the ox was part of that work, and the ox got paid for it. Uh, this verse is not necessarily, it's not actually saying that God's not concerned about oxen, um, about animals. It's making a comparison. Actually, um, the Lord does make it clear that He feeds the animals. In Matthew chapter 6, He says, uh, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Than they? Another comparison. Luke chapter 12, 16, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one of the sparrows. Psalm 4 and 47, 9. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens and, and to the young ravens which cry. And then Job 38, 41. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Finally, regarding work itself, one has to remember that the Greeks, they hated the idea of working with their hands. <laughs> you don't expect me to actually clean that toilet. You don't expect me to actually clean up after dinner, and there's a there's an attitude that that that, per, that permeates certain types of people like that, and it's it's actually quite disheartening um, when they won't take responsibility for their own cleanup. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing. There was one commentator said it this way: <coughs> Keep in mind that for the most part, the Greeks despised manual labor; they had slaves to do manual labor so that the citizens could enjoy sports philosophy, and leisure. The Jews, however, magnified honest labor. They understood it and magnified it. Any comments about verse 9? Questions? So, it's right, it's righteous to allow those who are working to participate in taking nourishment and pay from the work they provide. That's what Paul's saying. So, verse 10. So, he just says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? And then he says, or, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And that's one of the things I was, one of the reasons I was asking that question ahead of time. If, if you're properly paid in your chosen profession, that's an incentive to work hard. And that's a good, a proper give and take. If an employer is properly taking care of his employees, they're going to want to give normally. There's always going to be the scofflaw and, and, the, and the, the taker. But, but for the most part, the average person who's well taken care of, well compensated in their chosen profession, wants to work hard, wants to give their employer a good return for the money that, that he is investing or she is investing in them. So in the same way that the man who plows the field and the one who threshes the harvest itself, itself have hope of reaping the benefits of working in that field, so the minister of the gospel should have hope of being able to obtain a living in ministering that gospel. It's a known fact that anticipation of being paid for work drives one to do work. 
And this is even a proper aspect of being paid. It is an incentive to do well. In fact, generally speaking, laborers who are properly compensated are the best workers in any given industry. This goes a long way towards encouraging employers to treat their employees well. It has a mutual benefit. There is nothing wrong with enlightened self-interest. There's nothing wrong with enlightened self-interest. I'm not talking about greed. I'm talking about having an understanding that in order to eat in this world, you need to work. But you want to have a good living. You want to, you want to make a decent living eating and enjoying the benefits of your work. That is what enlightened self-interest is someone who realizes that if they work hard, they can earn a good living wage and even advance in the career that they have chosen. This would be the hope that is spoken of here. There is a give and take in a properly functioning employee-employer relationship which makes for healthy working conditions for both. Paul had every right to expect a living from his ministry. The Greeks knew it, the Jews knew it, but apparently the Corinthians were pushing back. And that's unfortunate. Any comments about this? That God um, expects the plowman to expect something from his plowing, the thresher to expect to hope, have a hope in sharing the crops? Probably living in the city of Corinth in a, in a major port city uh, on that isthmus where the ship, shippers, remember the shippers who didn't want to go clear down around into that terrible weather, they'd constructed a four mile, I believe it was four mile, rail across there. A lot of money flowing into that area. It would have been relatively easy most of the time to to earn a good living. So I'm thinking that the Corinthians were just fine. That they all of the the little bits and pieces throughout this entire book point to them most of the time, most of it at least being affluent, very affluent, having their own slaves, that kind of thing. Well, I'll get no. I'm not going to chase that rabbit. I'll leave it alone. Verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul, another question. If we did this, is this too much? Is it too much? He doesn't just say, shouldn't we be able to? He says, is it too much? The spiritual things in life are far more important than the material. But in order for spiritual things to be propagated, ministers need to be fed. Some people believe that you starve a preacher to feed the flock. You've never heard that before, have you? You have? Okay. Starve a preacher, preacher to feed the flock. That's how they, they look at the ministry of the Word. In other cases, the ministers themselves believe that you starve the flock to feed the preacher. Neither is true. The servants of the Lord who are properly ministering the Scriptures, counseling and properly protecting and watching the flock deserve to be well taken care of. Clearly, Paul here is responding to some sort of a negative attitude towards his meet, towards meeting his physical needs by the Corinthians. This is evident from the language he, he uses. Is it too much? Is it too much to ask? Have you ever, <laughs> I'm thinking, I was thinking back to my childhood. My mother would say, is it too much to ask that you just keep the room so that it has a, a pathway through it? Is that too much to ask? She would say that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I read this today and I went, oh, my poor mother. <laughs> I, was, I, I, was a, I was a professional mess maker. Where, where there were no mess... Tasmanian devil come in and it was it was a disaster. Is it too much? The Greeks would have known themselves that those who minister receive payment from those who are ministered to. Barclay in his commentary alludes to this. And I'm just going to kind of breeze through this. 
the Levites and the priests in Old Testament times actually could and did make quite a good living. They were very well taken care of. The priest who serves in the temple receives his share of the offerings. In Greek sacrifice, the priest, as we have seen, received the ribs, the ham, and the left side of the face. But it is worthwhile looking at the perquisites of the priest in the temple of Jerusalem. So the pagan priests were taken well, well taken care of. But we have more information about what would happen in the, in the Hebrews, in the Jewish. There were five main offerings. The burnt offering. This alone, this alone was burnt entire except for the stomach, the entrails, and the sinew of the thigh. And then I have the scriptures up there if you want to, to, to look them up. But even in this, the priest received the hides and did a flourishing trade with them. The sin offering. In this case, only the fat was burned on the altar and the priest received all the flesh for food. The trespass offering. Again, the fat alone was burned and the priest received all the flesh. The meat offering. This consisted of flour and wine and oil. Only a token part was offered on the altar. By far, the greater part was the perquisite of the priests. They received the rest of it for their food. The peace offering. The fat and the entrails were burned on the altar. The priest received the breast and the right shoulder, and the rest was given back to the worshiper. So that's quite a bit of food. The priest enjoyed still further perquisites. They received the first fruits of the seven kinds, wheat, barley, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive, and honey. The teruma. The teruma. Uh, this was the offering of the choicest fruits of every growing thing. The priest had the right to an average of one-fiftieth of any crop. A tithe, the tithe. A tithe had to be given of everything which may be used as food and is cultivated and grows of the earth. This tithe belonged to the Levites, but the priests received a tithe of the tithe that the Levites received. And then the, the challah. This was the offering of kneaded dough. If dough was made with wheat, barley, spelt, oats, or rye, a private individual had to give to the priest one-twenty-fourth part a public baker, 148th part. And you thought that they just existed on the tithe. There was a lot of other uh, benefits that came from being in the temple because God knew they had no other way to earn their living. They were going to be busy full-time doing the ministry of the temple, and this was how they earned their living. So they actually earned their living by ministering in the temple. And it was good and righteous and just. So all of this would have been in Paul's mind as he delivered this teaching from the Holy Spirit. Remember, he was a he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out. He knew about all these things. <laughs> Ahead of time, the Holy Spirit had his life planned just like yours from the beginning. And so when Paul became, when Paul was, was uh, converted, he had all of this historical background that he could draw from as the Holy Spirit inspired him. It's a wonderful thing. The life of a priest could be very lucrative and comfortable one indeed. So just keep that in mind. Any comments about sowing spiritual and reaping material? It's a clear indication that it's it's this, the Holy Spirit says this is a good thing. Verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, nevertheless, he says, we did not use this right. And I didn't go on to the last one. I apologize for that. If you want the, the scriptural references and the, and the uh, Jewish encyclopedia references. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Apparently, others who had ministered in Corinth had been compensated. Maybe Peter or Apollos. Paul, the founder of this church, certainly had a right to be compensated for his work there. Now, the word translated more is a descriptive adverb of degree. It can mean extra or to a greater degree, but Paul chose not to take advantage of his clear right and, and the obligation of the Corinthians. He would do nothing that would cause the gospel to be hindered. 
It's unfortunate, but sometimes when the gospel is being ministered, the minister must take heed to those whom he is ministering to and think about their idiosyncrasies and their needs and their abilities. What can he do in, in this particular case to minister more effectively to this group of people? This is what Paul did, knowing that the Corinthians, for whatever reason, seemed to think that he was less worthy of their support. It was almost a catch-22. How many of you are familiar with that verse, that word? Okay. It's, um, well, in this particular case, since he chose not to require them to support him, although he could require it, they apparently looked on him as admitting he was not an apostle. This can help explain the first verse in this chapter where he says, Am I not an apostle? Paul would endure whatever was necessary to make certain that he communicated the gospel clearly and cogently to these wayward Greeks. He would do nothing to hinder this preaching. The Greek word he chose here is used only here in the New Testament that he uses for hinder. Uh, and what it, uh, it, it's a military term that refers to breaking up a road to impede enemy progress. It's important to remember this when we were looking at verses later on, when we we're looking at verses 21 and 22, where Paul alludes to the fact that he became all things to all people. This is what he is talking about, doing whatever is biblically sanctioned and necessary to present the gospel. He had every right to require the Corinthians to treat them just as they should have anybody else who provided them a service. But he chose to treat this ministry as giving rather than as employment. This is not to say that he would look at his at his ministry to others only as employment, but rather that he went the extra mile here because the Corinthians apparently needed to be ministered to in this way. Further, Paul knew something about these folks and he knew that to be beholden to them, and this is how they would view it, would be a problem. Well, what are you talking about? We paid you for that. We've got slaves that do all work for us, but we paid you. There's so many dynamics going. I'm so, I, I want to keep being alive. But when I get there, these are questions. What, what was really going on in Corinth? What else was going on? The Holy Spirit didn't need to put it all there. There's enough teaching here for us, for our needs today, to be able to take proper care of our ministers. But there was so much, so many dynamics going on here that, and, and, and this is where, uh, teachers of the, of the scriptures can get way off into the weeds and form doctrines that are just stupid. So I'm going to leave that stuff alone. But it is interesting, isn't it? When you raise your eyebrow like this, and I wonder what was going on there. These Corinthians, I tell you, they remind me of me. Just weird. So, he knew something that, and he knew that to be beholden to them would be a bad thing, would not be a good thing. Um, the Corinthians would not have the benefit of the history of the Jews where it was clear that those who ministered were well taken, taken care of. I'll put this into account. This is a good thing to copy today, and we do, for ministers who are in new territory where the gospel is unheard of. <laughs> they should go there fully supported by Christians at home. Once a good population of believers is established, they can then begin taking care, those believers can then begin taking care of their own ministers. One commentator captured it well. He said this, Here we see Paul's real heart. Paid or not paid, it did not matter to him. What mattered was the work of the gospel. Was it more effective for the gospel if Paul should receive support? Then he would receive it. Was it more effective for the gospel if Paul should work to support himself? Then he would do that. What mattered was that the gospel would in no way be hindered. Remember that when we get to verses 21 and 22. I have become all things to all men. This is what he's talking about. It's one of the things he's talking about. So, let's finish this up. Uh, it's a good thing 
to be remunerated for your work. And if you aren't properly taken care of, Matthew 5 gives us clear principles. Luke chapter 6, I believe I should have looked it up. Go to the person. Who's that person? My employer. Talk to them about it. Maybe they never thought of it. Maybe they had no idea you weren't being properly taken care of. Paul has a different situation. He had the right to be properly remunerated by these Corinthians for all the work he was doing. But he chose to forego it. Now, in preparation for what we when we get to this next week, uh, if we make it to this next week, it kind of sounds like he's providing all the reasons that they should start paying him. He's not doing that. But it does sound like it. Am I not an apostle? Don't I have the right to be fed? Don't I have the right to take a wife and she should be prepared, she should be taken care of as well? We'll see the point, we'll see that he gave them six reasons why he should have been taken care of. But he forgo, he forgoes their responsibility to take care of him for the ministry of the gospel so that it wouldn't be hindered. Let's keep that in mind. When we, wherever we are working, wherever we are placed by God, what, what can we do in that situation? that the ministry of the gospel be not hindered. I would venture to say that more likely it's not going to have much to do with your pay, but, but the way you work, the attitude, and the, the, the service you give. Because in this day and age, in this society, it's expected that you get paid for your work. But if you do more, if you do better, if you do extra, do you think your employer is going to be appreciative? Do you think he's going to be open to maybe your influence in their life? And that's a good thing. In Paul's particular case, he had to forgo what was rightfully his in order to be able to minister to the gospel. Let's take that as an example to ourselves. Let's be all things to all men. We're not to that section yet, but it really resonates here. And let's just thank God that that uh, he takes care of our every need. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that God would take care of him. He worked hard to minister the gospel to the Corinthians. And then he worked hard to send them a letter that would correct their waywardness by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that everything you bring into our lives is for our good, no matter what it seems like at the time. Let us be those who do not let those things go to waste, but we learn from them. We learn how to be better and more efficient and more effective and more loving ministers of your gospel. For it is your gospel to bring to your, to your kingdom those whom you have chosen in Christ. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.